This is a diet of Brussels. Ah, it's a new year again. It's uh, the sixth year of this podcast and we've got a deal to discuss. It's been uh, a couple of weeks since the trade and cooperation agreement was uh, agreed between the two sides. It now has been signed by both the EU and the UK. The UK has rapidly passed uh, an enabling bill uh, in the House of Commons uh, on the 30th of December. And all that remains for full ratification is uh, an approval by the uh, European Parliament, which will probably happen in February. So where we are today, it's the 6th of January, is in a new stage of the Brexit process. Uh, the transition period ended uh, at 11 o'clock on the 31st of December, UK time, uh, which means that uh, most of the prior uh, obligations and rights that existed uh, and interactions that existed have uh, fallen away. And we're left with a very uh, narrow trade deal, uh, trade focus deal between the two sides. Um, so in terms of the kind of the, the, the general structuring of the Brexit process, you could say that this is uh, the start of the second half uh, of uh, the, the whole thing. Um, we've gone now through finishing uh, leaving uh, the EU and now we are getting into working up a new relationship. And the reason I say that it's the start of the, the, the second half is that the one thing that is quite striking uh, looking at this uh, trade and cooperation agreement is that there is a lot that is still to be done and a lot that still could be done. And we'll talk about that in uh, a minute. But it's worth just reflecting, I think, a bit on the process before we get on to the, the contents. Um, you'll remember that through 2020, there was a severe concern about a lack of time, a lack of progress. Uh, the same issues were coming up again and again from the start back in March uh, around governance, around the level playing field, around fisheries. Those three issues never really seemed to budge. As we got deeper and deeper into autumn, uh, those problems looked less and less tractable. But at the same time, it was also clear that for both sides, there was uh, a good rational economic uh, and geopolitical interest in reaching an agreement, uh, even as uh, I think there was genuine uncertainty on the part of number 10 about what they wanted to do. And I don't want to kind of overreg this. I don't think it was some Machiavellian uh, efforts to try and wring more concessions by looking flaky. I think it genuinely was flakiness in terms of uh, not having the bandwidth to uh, sit down and make strategic plans. And I think one of the things we can say generally about the current British government 
uh, is that strategic planning doesn't seem to be a forte, whether we're talking about COVID or Brexit or any other part of uh, the range of public policy, there seems to be more of an interest in muddling through, making do with uh, what the situation is, uh, and dealing with the, the consequences of that as they come along. So in that sense, Brexit is handled really quite similarly to COVID in terms of leaving decisions as late as possible, if not too late, uh, for there to be as much manoeuvre as might be liked. And that certainly was the case uh, if we look at those negotiations. Uh, we blasted through every single reasonable deadline for uh, making an agreement. We found ourselves then on uh, Christmas Eve, the 24th of December, with a text, but uh, we didn't actually see the text in public until uh, the Boxing Day, so two days later, which left hardly any time for anybody to look at it. Uh, and so again, we've had this uh, incredibly attenuated process uh, where just uh, four days later, uh, Parliament uh, rushed through a bill with some very extensive uh, clauses giving a lot of latitude to the government to sort it out when we've got a bit more time uh, in terms of implementing the, the provisions of the treaty, which works in the sense that uh, it went through, but I think, again, raises a bigger issue and a bigger problem that we will be likely to be coming back to in the future, which is one of legitimacy and transparency. It's fair to say that most people have not invested a lot of time in looking at the provisions of uh, the treaty uh, on either side of uh, the negotiating table. Instead, what we have is broad relief that we didn't end up with a no-deal scenario, um, especially if you think about the disruption that's already uh, becoming apparent uh, at border crossings uh, and in terms of trade. But uh, that doesn't mean that this has been something that has been subject to close independent scrutiny and I think one of the things we might usefully look at is the process in the European Parliament where there is likely to be uh, more considered uh, and detailed reflection prior to signing off um, and almost inevitably we are likely to find that uh, some typographical uh, issues will need to be dealt with and possibly some more substantive ones. To take the best-known example, uh, there were references to Netscape Explorer and uh, security standards that uh, haven't been updated in over 15 years and seem to be a cut-and-paste job from a much earlier text. Now, that in itself is not a problem, and clearly uh, the negotiators, when drawing up this treaty, had to move uh, with great speed and use text as they found it. But, you know, I think this comes back to that bigger problem that uh, if this looks like something that was done in a rush, because it was, then it raises questions about whether this was a good deal, uh, whether this was a workable deal. Um, and uh, as such, it's not surprising that we have quite so much uh, capacity to review and revise uh, what there is and indeed to continue negotiating uh, as we find. <coughs> 
In terms of content, the Trade and Cooperation deal is uh, an association agreement as far as the EU is concerned, which means uh, that this is a, a somewhat repurposed instrument. The intention of association agreements is to bring third countries closer to the EU orbit rather than using it the other way around. Um, some have pointed out there's a certain irony that the existence of association agreements is uh, thanks to the UK, that uh, the travails of the 60s uh, really necessitated uh, the then European Economic Community to develop its third country relations through uh, association agreements, in large part because of the UK, uh, who then were also keen to use that device as a way of managing pre-accession states uh, in the process. So now we have the UK itself benefiting from that, albeit in the opposite direction. It also matters because uh, an association agreement is one that is uh, concluded by the EU alone rather than with member states. And we haven't seen a uh, major querying of that at this stage, um, but it's conceivably uh, member states might at some points feel that if this uh, grows in competence or range that then we have to get into national ratifications which as we uh, know from CETA uh, and from other deals in the EU's case can take many many years. At the heart of it is a deal around goods um, there is uh, zero quota, zero tariff uh, access to each other's markets, which is a, a very ambitious uh, offer. Um, and as such, it comes with a number of commitments in terms of trying to ensure a high degree of coordination on uh, standards. So this is the level playing field uh, option. It's worth saying that the EU did tone down some of its opening language and its mandates. So the UK doesn't have to follow EU state aid rules uh, in its uh, business, um, with the exception of Northern Ireland, which we'll come back to. Um, There is uh, essentially an agreement on non-regression, so that the standards that applied at the end of 2020, at the end of transition, which by definition were the same for the two sides, Uh, Both sides accept that they will not go back and they will try to match each other. So it's a somewhat softer uh, position than the maximalist view that uh, some uh, on the European side were pushing very hard. But nevertheless, it creates a strong incentive for the UK to maintain those standards uh, and to keep aligned as much as possible with the EU in order to uh, make trade uh, no more... uh, frictive than it already is. I think already we see that in the opening days of 2021. Whilst there aren't quotas or tariffs, there are still now new checks in terms of uh, health standards, uh, sanitary, phytosanitary uh, requirements, uh, checks that are required in terms of other uh, regulatory compliance, so non-tariff barriers, All of those things are clearly uh, additional burdens, additional requirements. And so it's not surprising that in the opening days of 2021, we've seen lots of uh, logistics companies, hauliers, uh, deciding that it might be a good time to have either a holiday 
or to just suspend business until they can work out how this works. Now, to give you uh, some examples of the kinds of issues that have emerged, let's go to one of my own personal uh, interests, which is bicycles. Um, we've seen uh, several European manufacturers of bicycles suspend deliveries to uh, the UK because of continuing uncertainty about uh, what uh, the process might be and also just awareness that deliveries were likely to be delayed. We've had UK bike manufacturers who might be bringing in uh, their frames for the bicycles from places like Taiwan, which is uh, the global uh, center, as I'm sure you know, of uh, bicycle frame manufacture, and then building up for bicycles. And they've been uh, finding difficulties in terms of being clear about whether uh, that adds enough value to the goods in order to make it possible to uh, benefit from uh, that tariff-free access. And this is something known as rules of origin. If you buy a frame and then stick some bits on it, have you actually made it, uh, added enough value to uh, that good in order to justifiably make it uh, British-made? And uh, rules of origin are hellishly uh, complex, and I'm not even going to try and get into how that works. But the result has been... Suspensions in sales, suspensions in deliveries, uncertainty about what uh, requirements apply, uh, quite on top of the, the kind of the general de logistical uh, delays that have taken place. And so we have seen cases where uh, European uh, businesses have decided to stop selling into the UK in part because uh, HMRC has uh, required uh, those European businesses to collect VAT on their behalf and then to send it off, uh, which clearly is uh, a substantial administrative burden. And uh, if the UK is not a major market, then you might well think that that's not really worth uh, the effort. So the general impact so far seems to be that we're going to see some trade uh, reduction, some trade diversion. Take other examples, we might think about the activation of direct uh, ferry routes between France and the Republic of Ireland to bypass the land bridge through the UK, which seems to have been doing uh, roaring business, uh, even though it's slower than going through Holyhead uh, or the other uh, routes through the UK, uh, that still seems to have been something that's successful. So ultimately in this, whilst there is a benefit to uh, maintaining uh, an avoidance of the most serious restrictions on trade, it's clear that trade in goods still is uh, not going to be uh, what it was, whatever uh, the government might say. But goods, as we know, is only a small part of modern economic life. And in the case of the UK, three quarters or so of economic activity is in services. And here we have very little uh, in the agreement that is um, made available. There's a kind of ambition to set up a framework of uh, mutual recognition of qualifications. So if you're an architect or a lawyer uh, or an academic, your qualifications, which were recognised across the uh, EU up until uh, a week ago, now are not recognised. 
which means that your ability to conduct business uh, or to have the, the necessary like uh, a standee to uh, conduct business uh, is much reduced. And so we fall not even onto EU rules, but onto national rules, which are still highly variable. So the consequence of this is that uh, services are going to be uh, much more affected in terms of uh, trading. We've seen uh, in the opening days of business of the, of the City of London that many European shares have moved trading uh, over to uh, European bourses um, and we're likely to see more of that. But while we haven't seen a collapse of uh, the city, uh, you know, I think it's, it's important to, to not overemphasize uh, that movement. Uh, still there is an impact and certainly one of the benefits that London has had which has been its uh, clustering is likely to become more challenged over time as parts of business find that they have to or choose to move away from London. Other than that we've talked about level playing fields uh, I guess the, the other contentious issue has been fisheries. And there, largely, we've ended up where everyone thought we would end up, which is some kind of compromise position between the two sides. Uh, there'll be a five and a half year adjustment period where uh, EU access to European uh, to UK waters will reduce uh, progressively. After that time, the UK will become... Uh, uh, a state like others in uh, the EU's uh, neighbourhood with freedom to uh, set its own quotas and engage in negotiations uh, about access for others. However, there's a sting in the tail. That sting is that whilst the UK, after the five and a half year period, is free to set its own standards, it does so in the acceptance that the EU is free to start imposing tariffs uh, and other restrictions on uh, the UK should it feel that uh, access is not uh, fair and proportional. So whilst normally the UK would seem to have the freedom that it so desperately craves, uh, the EU retains a position of saying, well, if things change uh, more drastically, then we're likely to uh, impose penalties which make your fishing industry uh, not particularly commercially viable. And remember that fish caught in the UK are typically sold in the EU and uh, the, the capacity to uh, carve out uh, a UK-specific track is really very limited. So unless British people start eating a whole lot more fish, then uh, it's hard to see how actually this uh, actually uh, allows for uh, as much freedom as uh, might uh, seem to be uh, evident in the first place. And certainly the fishing industry has not been particularly happy uh, with the compromise, but uh, that's been rather drowned out in the bigger scheme of things. If fish took up a lot of uh, psychic energy and uh, attention, then 
Uh, I think it's also worth remarking on another big area alongside services that hasn't seen much progress, namely security. On both uh, military uh, cooperation and on domestic internal security cooperation, police and judicial cooperation, the texts are very uh, scant. There is kind of partnerships, uh, associations, to systems, but not the anything like the depth of cooperation that uh, both sides said was so important in data sharing. And this despite the clear benefit that both sides would have. The EU uh, made uh, very good uh, use of the extensive uh, surveillance and intelligence capacity that the UK has. The EU uh, also provided large amounts of data about uh, foreign nationals uh, in the UK um, and uh, that doesn't seem to have been able to translate into something more. Um, so whilst there are some scope for further discussions, that seems to be really uh, left uh, in abeyance. So all of this points to a really very limited uh, agreement, um, but one which does still establish uh, a useful framework for future negotiation and cooperation. So all of this happens under the framework of a uh, partnership council between the two sides, which is uh, able to discuss issues both within the text and beyond the text. There are review points for the entire agreement every five years. So in 2026 will be the next point. There are a number of other areas which uh, have got um, uh, negotiations pre-programmed. I've mentioned the mutual recognition of professional qualifications, but we might also point to uh, the negotiations around um, energy cooperation, um, there's a time limit on the operation of the provisions in the treaty and a requirement that within uh, about a, a year and a half there's a new uh, separate agreement on interconnectors, so the joining up of energy grids uh, between the two sides. Um, and more generally there are a number of other uh, places in which there is scope to uh, revisit the text and check its operation. And all of this underpinned by a, a fairly standard and robust uh, dispute settlement mechanism. And this maybe is worth uh, mentioning as well because this had been one of the, the key sticking points. The UK was successful in removing any referral in that process to the uh, Court of Justice and the EU side. So uh, whilst it follows a very similar process to the dispute settlements mechanism that was present in the withdrawal agreement, the panel that is uh, pulled together is not able to uh, make referrals to uh, local courts to get pronouncements on the interpretation of uh, provisions, i.e. the Court of Justice on EU law. However, the panels are still able to impose uh, significant sanctions, and those sanctions are uh, cross-cutting. So if you 
uh, make an infringement in one area of the treaty, then you can have a sanction applied in other areas. Now, whilst there are a number of exceptions to that, quite a few exceptions in fact, that uh, still is important because it means that failure to comply in, say, uh, goods processes might end up with sanctions being applied on fish, to take an example. If we think about where this leaves matters, um, on the one hand, I think we have to uh, be clear that uh, this is much better than the alternative. If we're sitting here discussing a no deal, then I think I would be very downbeat at all. Um, the willingness of both sides to uh, make this work, to accept a number of compromises, I think really points to that basic uh, recognition that <laughs> was hopefully always there, although as I say, I'm not entirely sure that it always was, that a no deal really would have created vastly more problems than a, a deal does. The presence of a deal that uh, the UK has already uh, put into law, uh, domestic law, um, alongside the start-up of the operation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which I haven't mentioned properly so far, but suffice to say that that uh, protocol basically operates uh, almost completely uh, as uh, was uh, outlined in the withdrawal agreement because the, the, the TCA really doesn't uh, do very much to uh, remove the necessity of its operation. With both the TCA and the protocol moving into implementation, with both sides uh, able to demonstrate through their actions rather than just their words that they are uh, acting in good faith uh, and sincerely, that at least puts something of a flaw under the damage to relations that has taken place. I think one of the things that's been fairly palpable over the past week has been the sense of relief that we don't have to be now in super active phase of EU-UK relations. Both sides have very pressing and urgent and substantial uh, issues to get on with, uh, most obviously COVID vaccination programs, uh, which really require them to not be having to worry about uh, this particular problem. So the tone so far has been relatively uh, emollient, as much as it exists at all. And in fact, what's striking has been how little either side has really gone on about this. Uh, even Boris Johnson, who might have been expected to uh, go on about getting Brexit done, uh, limited himself to some fairly perfunctory remarks uh, prior to New Year, and then really has uh, gone off to talk about uh, other stuff. And nobody really seems particularly keen to get uh, into the weeds of this. It probably suits the political space for both sides to uh, take the narrative that uh, this is uh, done, uh, it's the end, uh, as uh, Ursula von der Leyen had said at her press conference. But uh, that's also equally not true. We, it's the end of the old uh, relationship, but it's just the start of building up something new. 
And I think what we're likely to see in uh, the coming months and years is a, a semi-permanent process of negotiation and interaction. That there are the things I've already mentioned in terms of reviews and negotiations. But also there is the wider set of interactions that I think are likely to continue to develop. There are very many issues that need attention that are either known, uh, most obviously on climate change, or which are at this stage unknown, such as that kind of a the pandemic type situation. This is why um, focusing on that framework of institutionalized interaction is really important because that partnership council is going to be a key point of contact between the two sides uh, in the coming years. And really, uh, I think in this next year, as we're kind of the, the, the sharp end of implementation, and particularly as we have a number of grace periods that will run out through the first half of this year, uh, and uh, through to the end of 2021, then I think we'll start to see whether the machinery is uh, willing and able to deal with anything that emerges. And this, I think, is maybe the big danger, is that issues in one area might potentially spill over into other areas as we go along, that the, the capacity to contain uh, problems to keep them compartmentalized uh, is not entirely clear to me. And certainly that cross-retaliatory possibility uh, in dispute settlement mechanism terms is something that raises the specter of a more general issue. If you want to know what that looks like, then you can look to Switzerland, where uh, the cross-linkage of the many different elements of this Swiss-EU relationship uh, has uh, seen a significant number of problems over recent years and uh, really hasn't been uh, easy to resolve. So as we step into this new year and as we continue to reflect on what is going on, uh, I think this is maybe the, the key point to take away from all of this. The Trade and Cooperation Agreement is a new chapter in EU-UK relations, but it is by no means a chapter that is fully written. It is a chapter where the two sides still have considerable scope to shape and mould what comes next. And there's nothing in that agreement that precludes future UK governments seeking more substantial uh, engagement on any number of issues uh, that you might need to have. However, um, what this probably does mark is the end of uh, the hot phase of Brexit. That that process that really got going uh, back in 2015 with David Cameron's election back when this podcast started, uh, we're past that now. This is not going to be a central issue for either con- either side uh, 
for some considerable time yet. And really, it's, it's hard to see how we get back to anything like the times that we've had, certainly since 2016, where Brexit was the major issue for the UK and an important issue for the EU. Um, perhaps, I think maybe with a bit more reflection, uh, we might usefully talk about what happens to leave and remain as cleavage in the UK. Um, but uh, it's hard to see how those who might want the UK to return to EU membership can engineer anything like this uh, situation in the short to medium term. My first impression is that this is uh, at best a generational project rather than one that uh, can reasonably be pursued in uh, the next uh, five to ten years. And if you want to know why, then just imagine uh, telling people that uh, they've got to go through, again, what they've been through over the past five years, six years. There aren't going to be many takers for that. Uh, and it's going to have to be an incredibly compelling uh, reason, an incredibly urgent reason to make that even a, a vaguely reasonable proposition. And I think if we're honest, that's uh, incredibly unlikely to uh, take place. Um, thinking about all the exceptional circumstances that we've been in uh, of late. So, um, in that context, uh, we trundle on. Uh, I think episodes for this podcast will continue uh, for some time yet. I think we have to see a little bit about how things play out, but... Uh, you might understand if episodes become a bit more, even more episodic than they have been uh, in the past year. But we'll see, because as we've learned to our mutual uh, uh, benefit, Brexit never uh, ceases to surprise. On that note, I shall wish you all a happy new year, and thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon.